When Jesus became incarnate in a certain way, he united himself to every human person. What we do in the Catholic Church is we extend and continue the mission of Jesus Christ to the world. But as he's the God incarnate, we live that incarnational way through what we call the sacraments. The sacraments are the church's ministry of the incarnation throughout time and place. Hey everyone, this is Michael Gormley here, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization and discipleship. Today you're going to hear an example of a baptism class that I gave recently, and I'm going to demonstrate to you how we weave our own testimony stories, how we address people who might feel like they are outsiders looking in. Obviously, at baptism classes, often only one spouse is Catholic, and so you can hear me give invitations, welcoming people, uh, making sure that if they're Protestant Christians, they don't feel alienated or outcasts or anything like that, but also hear how I weave the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ throughout the entire presentation as I unfold doctrines of oh, a little bit of everything, the Trinity, sacraments in general, baptism, the Paschal Mystery, all of that good stuff. Dave and I are going to record here next week, so you will have a show with us, but we couldn't align our schedules because he has started traveling yet again. Finally, we have a sponsor. St. Jose Maria Escrava said, if you say the rosary every day with a spirit of faith and love, Our Lady will make sure she sends you very far along her son's path. Our sponsor of today's episode is a firm believer of these words. Choose Life is a small Catholic business whose mission is to equip all Catholics with rosaries for life. And they mean it. They have silicon rosaries for babies and beautiful gemstone and wooden rosary bracelets for adults. They have a rosary for everyone. The silicon rosaries are soothing for your little one and will also help them to build wonder and love for the rosary. Imagine seeing your little one totally loving on a rosary made just for them. It is like seeing your baby hold hands with our mother Mary. And the rosary bracelets for adults, they are so beautiful and so well-made. A really neat feature of the rosary bracelets is their bookmark crucifix charm. If you don't have time to get through a whole rosary at once, no worries. Simply use the charm to hold your place until you can come back to it. You need to check out Choose Life. Along with their many beautiful rosaries, Choose Life features a lot of other amazing products created to bring the faith into your home. Go check them out now at Choose Life. That's C-H-E-W-S, ChooseLife.com. Use the code EVERYNEE10 to get 10% off your purchase. That's every knee 10, the number 10, all one word, to get 10% off your purchase. Our thanks to our friends over at ChooseLife.com for their sponsorship of Every Knee Shall Bow. So here is my baptism class that I recorded on Saturday morning for y'all. God bless. So my name is Michael Gorman. I'm the director of evangelization here. As I said earlier, I oversee all the programs uh, from womb to tomb. Once you get to the funeral, I, I bow out. But all of faith formation up until that moment, I kind of oversee here at the parish. And I teach a lot of classes, especially for those who feel like they are on the outside looking in when it comes to faith. So if you are not Catholic, welcome. Uh, there'll be no haterade spilled on you today. But what we want to do is present the Catholic and if you're Orthodox, Orthodox view of baptism, its place in history and in sacred scripture. This is uh, stuff that Lutherans would hold in common with us, that Anglicans, Episcopalians um, would hold in common, and many Presbyterians as well. Don't feel like this is uh, super alienating, but I am absolutely going to give you the Catholic view of baptism, its history development, especially throughout sacred scripture, okay? So that's what we're going to dive in. First, what is baptism? What does it mean? The Greek word baptismoi means to plunge or to Im immerse, so to dunk, right? That's what baptism means, to dunk, to immerse. This is a word in Greek that was used for 
for uh, a Hebrew term, the mikvah, which is these ritual baths that they would do in order to purify themselves before a sacred feast, meals, whatever. There was a group at the time of Christ for about uh, 200 years before the coming of Christ um, and at the same time called the Essenes. And the Essenes were a very rigid, extreme group of Jews who found that the temple was so corrupted, hopelessly corrupted, that they moved into the desert. John the Baptist was probably affiliated with their community, though probably not an Essene. Their teachings were found all throughout the Roman Empire in these teaching houses. Uh, we're just now uncovering more and more data about them as archaeology uncovers this stuff. If you've ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's these people. And they believe that the, the end was nigh, so they began writing down uh, handwritten copies of tons of their books. We found the largest deposit of scrolls in the Holy Land. That's the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was libraries. But they took their one massive library and spread it through a bunch of caves because the Romans were coming to kill them, and they did. And so they hid it, and then one day a shepherd boy in 1948 found a pot and inside the clay pot was these scrolls. They didn't know what they had. They sold it for like 20 bucks, and now it's one of the most important finds in the history of archaeology. It's fascinating. But we've uncovered the writings of this group and all this stuff, but then they did excavation in their, what we would call today, a monastery, and it is filled with mikvahs. They, they are lousy with mikvahs because they believe they had to purify themselves so much in order to get ready for the Messiah to show up that they were bathing sometimes up to seven times a day, doing all this stuff. So at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, Christ, the idea of a ritual immersion, a washing, a plunging was not foreign. In fact, the word mikvah translated into the word baptism, baptismoi in Greek became the word that Christians and Jewish Christians used from the very beginning. Now, why does this matter? Because the sacredness and the symbolism of baptism was partially anticipated in the Old Testament, especially in these Jewish groups, because they believed that the Messiah was coming. And for some reason, baptism and the cleansing waters of baptism was supposed to be a thing that connected you with the Messiah. So what does John the Baptist do? He is the forerunner of the Messiah. So he goes out into the desert and there he begins preaching like a wild man, make ready the way of the Lord, make straight the way of the Lord, prepare his way because he knows that the Messiah is not going to come to a place filled with sinful rebellion and all this stuff. He wants them to over, you know, get rid of their corruption. So people will come to him. There's one part where the people are asking him, what should I do? What should I do? A Roman soldier comes to him. He says, what should I do? And he tells him, like, stop extorting people, stop using violence against people, live a just life, right? So when we have this, this encounter with John the Baptist, he is there, and it is a ritual that is meant to symbolize one's repentance of sin, right? I'm done with this way of life. I'm done with doing these actions. I want to clean myself of this. And then one day, while John the Baptist and his disciples, he had a bunch of disciples, are there at the Jordan River. You guys familiar with the Holy Land? So uh, modern-day Jordan is named after the Jordan River, right? So it falls on the east side of the border. It empties into the Dead Sea. And John the Baptist was on the other side, the eastern side of the waters. And he would bat people would come from Jerusalem principally. They would cross the Jordan River and then they would get baptized by his disciples. They would help you into the waters and you would publicly repent. If you didn't repent, you weren't allowed to come to the baptismal waters as is evident when the Pharisees showed up and they're like, what do you think you're doing? And John the Baptist just laid into him, right? He's like, who are you blind guides, you brood of vipers? To, who warned you to flee the coming wrath. It's pretty epic stuff. So the idea is, it's this is a moment where we are symbolically saying, I want to get rid of sin. Ritual purity was a very important concept in ancient Judaism. They were washing their hands. There's a handful of purity rituals that were prescribed in the Old Testament law of Moses, but that the Pharisees, by the time you get to first century Judaism, this is a political and religious party called Phariseeism, the Pharisees ramped up the level of ritual washings that every time you went into the market, because Romans are gross and disgusting and 
and uh, uh, non-covenantal followers, you had to purify everything over and over and over again before you could use it in everyday use. So if you bought a bowl or a cup or a spork from the uh, from the marketplace, you had to take it home. You had to ritually wash yourself because probably some dirty Roman put his dirty hands on your beautiful spork. So they were really heavy into these rituals. That's why Jesus would actually come after them. And he would say things that John the Baptist would say. You blind guides, woe to you blind guides, for you purify the outside of the cup without washing the inside of the cup. At one point, Jesus in Luke's gospel, he says, uh, woe to you blind guides and hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look pretty, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. So what is the point of all of this? The point of all of this is John the Baptist was fulfilling his role as a forerunner of Christ. From this moment, when Jesus comes to John the Baptist and begins to inaugurate his public life, John the Baptist sees him. He's his cousin. He knows he's here to preach the, the, the path of repentance because sin impedes the Messiah being able to operate in your life. What is sin? Sin is ultimately just our no to God. Big ways, small ways, whatever. In order to have God enter into your presence, you have to be able to say yes. You have to be cleansed of sin. Sin in the Old Testament was not kind of what we think of sin. Today, because we are inheritors of just as much the Bible as we are, Greek philosophy and all that stuff, when we think of sin, we think of a moral failure, right? We think of like, oh, I told a lie. I you know, stabbed that guy and watched the light go out in his eyes like John Wick does in John Wick 3, kills a guy with a library book. Anyway, so <laughs> when, you see, when you look at this, like we view it as the best movie ever. When you look at it as a moral failing and that's it, you don't fully understand. It becomes hard for us modern people to look at the Bible and understand why baptism, why were these people obsessed with bathing themselves and washing themselves and ritual purity and all this stuff. But if you look at it from the eyes of the authors who wrote it, Jews living in the first century, they would understand the worldview that they inhabited. But in 70 AD, something traumatic happened to Judaism that forever defined and changed and altered Judaism, which is the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman general Titus, who would eventually become the emperor. Why does this matter? Because they lived their lives up until 70 AD with daily sacrifice and the great feast. We have records that at, at the time, especially in 66 and 67 AD, that there was over a million people in the city of Jerusalem who came down for the great feasts. Why does that matter? Well, because then the Roman general Titus laid siege to Jerusalem when it was at this super abundant population and it, it led to famine almost immediately during the siege and all this horrible stuff. The ritual and the life of the temple was at the center. So before you could enter the temple and offer your sacrifice to do whatever, you had to be ready. So if you were coming for weekly prayers or whatever, you had to be purified. Right? You had to do the washings and all that stuff. But if you were coming to offer a sin offering, you would have to bring an animal to be sacrificed. So let's say you committed the sin of adultery, so you're going to bring a bull, right? you got to cover its eyes, maybe a sheep. We'll say sheep, a cute little sheep that we're going to slaughter. So you would cover its eyes, you would march it to the temple, but outside the doors of the temple, not inside the temple, pagan sacrifice on their altar. Jews do not. The Israelites never sacrifice on their altar. The death of an animal was inconsequential to the actual ritual. The point of it was to get the blood of the animal, not to be like, well, I'm going to put my sin on this animal and then kill this animal. That's not what they did. That's what pagans did. And that's why you'll hear some people say, when we talk about the death of Jesus Christ, what did he do? Well, God killed Jesus because he put our sins on him and then he killed Jesus and he killed. That's, that's, a, that's where you get new atheists saying, God the Father is a cosmic child abuser. That is not the point of the Jewish ritual. But we lose sight of it because the Greeks were pagans and that's what they did for their sacrifices. We kill the animals because the sin and guilt is on the animal. But for Judaism, what was sin? Sin was first and foremost pollution. 
pollution of the land, pollution of the human heart, pollution of the people, pollution of relationships. It wasn't just a moral failure. Oh, I didn't do this. Oh, I did do that. It wasn't. It was considered something that clung to the insides of my existence. It was something that I carried on into the lives of my family, right? That's why you have phrases like sins of the fathers, which is also on the next Batman trailer. Have you seen the Batman trailer? <laughs> right? Sins of the fathers, one of the things. Anywho, okay. I'm really excited, especially with that Nirvana song. Oh, baby. Anywho, so when we look at this, we see this understanding in the Old Testament of how sin has its social dynamics. It's always viewed socially. Why? Because we moderns are radical individualists. Even the most churchy McChurcherson of us, we're still radical individualists. My sin only affects me. That is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie. The most private sin that you ever commit affects everyone. It's a ripple in the pond. Why? Because it affects you and you belong to everyone. And so when you see this ancient Israelite conception of sin, sin as pollution, I think a better term today If they knew our germological understanding of the universe, they would say sin as infection. It's spread from person to person. It gets inside of you. It's like a contagion, right? In fact, when they talk about things like leprosy and other communicable diseases, they actually, in the Old Testament, call it pollution. So when we look at this, sin needs to be not just forgiven, but atoned for. Not just atoned for, it needs to be redeemed, not just redeemed. It needs to be cleansed, right? It needs to be cleansed. That's why we have things in the Catholic Church like holy water. It's not because we believe sin is all over the place, but we do believe that the grace of God matters in creation. That the word of God took flesh, the son of God became man, walked among us, took a full human nature and united it to his full divine nature. So that, I mean, he just sanctified creation in that. As the church teaches, when Jesus became incarnate, in a certain way, he united himself to every human person. And so what we do in the Catholic Church is we extend and continue the mission of Jesus Christ to the world. But as he's the God incarnate, we live that incarnational way through what we call the sacraments. The sacraments are the church's ministry of the incarnation throughout time and place. So when we understand the sacraments, don't understand them as something separate from the works of Jesus Christ that he accomplished for us on our behalf because we were helpless 2,000 years ago. We take the cross of Christ and his resurrection and we bring it through all seven sacraments. That's the whole point. That's the point of the sacraments. So I do a lot of prison ministry. It's a fascinating ministry. We go to one unit called the Ferguson unit. It can be a pretty violent place. And so we go and we put on these three-day retreats and I'll never forget the first time that this suburban homeschooler was a theology major, was invited to go on this retreat. I was voluntold by a buddy of ours named Jerry, who runs the retreat, and uh, or runs the ministry, he came up to me and he said, you know, you got to go on this. So like a typical millennial, I technically belong to the millennials of the Oregon Trail generation, right? So um, so uh, I did the thing that most millennials do when we want to get out of something, right? Like, oh, I don't feel good. I don't think I want to, right? I'm trying, I'm texting him like, nah, I think I got food poisoning, right? Like all the things that we all lie about uh, just to get out of stuff that we committed to. It's like, freedom! Oh, so I tell him like, it's just a couple days beforehand, it was like a Sunday, and I was like, I don't know. So he pops into my office on Monday after morning mass, and we start talking. I'm like, Jerry, I don't know. I'm really nervous. And he's like, oh, you'll be fine. Oh, you'll be fine. He's dismissing everything I'm saying. And I'm like, Jerry, I'm, I'm, okay, I'll just say it, man. I'm scared to go. I'm scared. And he's like, you'll be fine. He gets up and leaves, I think because he knew I was trying to get my way out of it. He gets up and leaves. The next day, I found out that on Mondays is when they would go to prepare for this retreat. He comes back and goes to morning mass, comes to my office, and he's like, good news, brother. I went and talked to all the men in the unit. And I was like, okay. And he said, and I told them all how scared you were of them. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know anything about prison. Everything I know about prison up till that point was Get Hard starring Will Ferrell. 
right? And so I'm, all I'm thinking is, all right, all right, I'm going to have to break a chair over someone's head as soon as I walk into the place. And I, so he said this, and I go, what, uh, you, you did what? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I told them how scared you were of them. I was like, Jerry, you did not, Jerry. And he goes, oh, no, 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 this is what they said. I'm like, Jerry. And he goes, the, the guy, Mark, he said, you go back and tell your buddy Gomer, Gomer's my nickname. And I was like, you told him my name. Like, there's 40 other guys that are coming. It could have been any one of them, right? And he, he's like, oh, it's fine. I'm like, he said, uh, he said, the, go back and tell your buddy Gomer that we're a bunch of murderers, gangbangers, and drug dealers, and we need the grace of Jesus Christ just as much as anyone at his parish. And I was like, oh, huh, plot twist. Okay, I wasn't expecting that. Was not expecting that. So then it's, uh, you know, four o'clock in the morning, I wake up, I drive from my house up to, because you guys are supposed to be there at like 5, 5.15, I'm always 20 minutes late. So I show up, and then Jerry passes out these prayer cards, and I'm like, what's this? And he's it's a deliverance prayer. And I, he goes, well, we just got word that the Satanist group found out that we're coming, so they've been like cursing us and doing all this stuff. So we're just going to pray. I'm like, okay, just <laughs> promise me you won't tell my wife any of this stuff. So we pray, we go inside, and I'm still, I'm super groggy, I'm super tired, and there's a big red sign, and it's where you give your driver's license over, and then you go inside, and uh, I'm just staring at the sign and staring at the sign. I can't make sense of it in the brain fog that early in the morning. And the sign says, warning, no hostages will be permitted past this point. Thank you, Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And I'm looking at that sign, I'm like, what does that mean? Why would someone bring a hostage outside the prison into the prison? And I'm just staring, and as I walked through, I was like, oh, no, if I'm volunteering to go into the belly of the beast, right, and I get kidnapped, and they choose this chubby little low athletic homeschooler to be a human shield, they're not going to exchange me for 12 pizzas and a helicopter like you see in the movies. Like, oh, no, you agreed to go in here, try to take a nap, do whatever they tell you. That's literally the hostage. Like, if you ever are taking hostage, they say, just try to take a nap. Don't make eye contact, do what they say, and try to take a nap, because almost all, side note, you don't see this in the movies. Almost all prison riots end with the, the person hopped up on K2 just falling asleep like 24 hours into it. They just fall asleep. So then you're like, all right, well, I'm just going to be in the corner if you need me. Right? So I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? Don't tell my wife about that. So I go in, we sit down, we start the retreat. And it's funny because it was just like any other retreat I'd ever been on. You look at the tables, all these men are talking, people are going back and forth. Some guys are oversharing, some guys are undersharing, some guys are half asleep, other guys are, you know, whatever, like all over the place. And it was just like any normal retreat I've ever been a part of. And it was weird how normal it was, at least in my head. And then a lot of the preconceived notions went away. So then I started getting taps on my shoulder. Hey, we got some questions over here. You want to come over to this table? And I was running a small group. And they're like, we'll get someone to help out here. So I keep bouncing the table to table. And Jerry comes up to me. He says, Mike. So this is, that was a long-winded story just to tell this one part. He said, Mike, we want to do a Q&A and have all the inmates who are there. There's 33 men on the retreat, 33 men, uh, inside men helping the retreat, and then us, we were like 40 guys helping run it. He said, yeah, let's do this Q&A, an impromptu Q&A. So I go up there and I'm like, hey, okay, does anyone have any questions? So the first two Q&As out of the four that were all ad hoc sprung on me at that moment were not, let me ask you a question. It was, let me tell you a question. And now that I've done four or five of these retreats, I realized something on these in these prison ministries that I see everywhere in America today, but creeping into the Catholic Church, like not creeping into, steamrolling into the Catholic Church. And it's simply this. So a person says to me, why do Roman Catholics add to the finished saving work of Jesus Christ? He died on the cross for us. He rose from the dead. He said it is finished. And yet you add Mary, the saints, uh, the papacy, the sacraments, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation. Why do you add to what Christ already said? It is finished. All I have to do is believe on Jesus and I'm good. 
But you say, no, but you also gotta do this, and also gotta do this, and godparent qualifications and all this stuff. And so I would answer, I got my standard answers that, well, in the Bible you find this, and in the Bible you find that. And I would throw out the verses, you know, you can defend all the church teaching from sacred scripture, at least in the, the, the seed form, right, that it was in the first century. But then we begin going, and uh, I start confirming the high school students. That post-COVID, we had to do six confirmations because we confirmed 300 high school students. So we start going through this, and I have to give the little brief warm-up talk before the mass. And I'm going through this and I realize for many of us, we think that Christianity is my personal faith in Jesus Christ. And then if you're a Catholic, like, yeah, and we get to have all this added stuff that I like. But we understand what Jesus did, you know, the Gospels. We understand that. We understand my personal faith in Jesus. And all this other stuff is just nice. If you like being Catholic, it's, it's a nice addition. But the problem is if... The Catholic Church is what she claims to be, that is, started by Jesus Christ. If all of this stuff, the sacraments, actually do what the church claims, then this is not an add-on, but is an essential component of the gospel. So I began to, so my, my kind of prayer routine is I start with Matthew's gospel and I read two chapters at a time. And when I finish Matthew, I go to Mark, Luke, John. When I finish John, I go back to Matthew. And I just will do this for the rest of my life until I die because I want to habituate the life, which is a fun word, to habituate the life of Christ in my own life. That's what I want to do. Sometimes, you ever met Christians who are jerks, right? You ever met them? I think so, <laughs> you really aggressively shook your head. I'm sitting next to them. Uh, <laughs> But I think one of the main reasons is like, yeah, you might have been broken and all this stuff and Christ came and you really felt the saving love of God rescue you, that salvation. But then somewhere along the line, we started believing our own propaganda. Look at what I did. Look at what I've done. And then you started looking at people who were in the exact same state as you, maybe before you had some sort of radical conversion or encounter or whatever. And you're like, come on, you could do better. You could be better. And you lose sight of the fact that the grace was freely given to you and Christ's grace converted your heart and made you a new creation. And now you're thinking you did it all on yourself. Like you bootstrapped your way to heaven, which is impossible. So what I think, I think the remedy for this is number one, humility, constant repentance, right? Realizing that I need to always repent. But number two is to read the life of Christ over and over and over again. So I can realize who Christ is, what he accomplished and how I need him in my life. Because what Christ did was, even though he had nothing wrong in his own soul, he still lived with absolute humility. And that's the game changer that flips the script on everything, every project of self-justification and self-aggrandizement and self-salvation. So what I hope to give you as we continue going through what is baptism is we never stray too far from what did Christ accomplish for us. So as I began listening to these men from the Ferguson unit and these confirmation students and some of this stuff, I began hearing it in the crowds. I began hearing it as I take over baptism from parents. When we step back and we look at this, Christ entered into the waters of the Jordan River. Christ entered into the waters of the Jordan River. Christ himself was baptized. So right then I began to think, well, if Christ himself was baptized, although his baptism is different than mine, if John the Baptist, if the way he was the herald and forerunner of Jesus Christ was through a ministry of baptism, if the first homily ever preached in the early church by on the Feast of Pentecost concluded with everyone saying, brother, we are cut to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And Peter's response was, be baptized, all of you. And the very next verse is, and on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. If over and over again, baptism forms a central place, then I need to step back and say, okay, well, maybe the sacraments were a part of the story all along, and I've been misunderstanding the sacraments. They're not add-ons that are like, you know, nice symbols that demonstrate and show me grace. 
They actually communicate that which they signify. Now, us modern people, we use symbols as you know, tools of propaganda, logo, branding. You know, the, for us, symbols don't mean as much as they did in the ancient world. Can, the ancient world, symbols were two things. They were performative, meant they made you move. It, it led to action, right? When a flag went up, armies changed their position. We don't have that. We just you radio in, you call out, you do the thing. But for them, symbols mattered. You died for symbols. You lived according to symbols. Symbols mattered. And they were diverse and all sorts of different stuff, but they mattered because not only were they performative, they were also cognitive. That is, they carried with them a knowledge, knowledge of the culture, of the people, of life, of this time in life, whatever it might be, and they led to action. It was all about knowledge and action. But today, what are symbols? They're appeals to emotion, branding, the golden arches, right? Things like that, right? You see it and you feel a certain way. Symbols mean th different things to different people. An American flag means different things to different people. When we start to look at this, modern man tends to denigrate symbols or just use them as uh, emotional tools. And if they do have any cognitive ability, it's just, you know, like the American flag. Yeah, the 13 stripes and the 50 stars, it carries some knowledge, it carries some understanding, but it's not really that important. Uh, unless you talk to someone who's like a soldier who literally was injured protecting a flag at an embassy. You know, or the, the soldiers on Iwo Jima as they're raising, as the Marines are raising the flag, that famous statue. So this was a famous thing, but for them, that meant something deep. But for most of us, symbols don't mean anything. Now, in the Catholic Church, we take it one step further. Catholics, Orthodox, Lutherans would all be in agreement with this. Symbols are fine, but the sacraments are efficacious signs. They're efficacious signs. What does that mean? So if I'm driving, I don't know. Yeah, okay. So a uh, little, little story about me. I failed my first driving test. Did anyone do that? Did anyone fail their first driving <laughs> test? No, no, no. The written one, I was fine. The driving one, I was terrible. I got a couple T-Rex arms in the back, right? Right. So I failed my first one. Why did I fail my first one? Man, I thought I aced it. I did not realize that I ran a stop sign after the, in the first five seconds. Because they the way they park you for, to get into the car and to start the test is right near this weirdly placed stop sign and they do it on purpose and I just rolled right I was like okay let me pull out and I just pulled out and I pulled out right past it and so I come at the end and she goes so how did I do and she said well you failed and I was like what like I was fanatical I'm like that's about 200 feet from my turn signal like I was doing everything on target and then she goes well you ran a stop sign so that's an automatic failure I'm like what stop sign she goes yeah that's part of the problem isn't it and I was like oh dang right <laughs> <laughs> a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine who was a year older than this girl that was in our class, he told her that all, and this is like a fairly common thing, that if a stop sign has white borders around the edge, that means it's optional. <laughs> and she blew through like three stop signs in her driver's so Turns out it's not. So the stop sign has no power to make me stop. Stop sign has no power to make me stop. It's a sign, but it's not efficacious. It doesn't cause the very thing it's, it's requiring or it's symbolizing. We have all rolled through stop signs. We've all done that. Okay, what is an efficacious sign in the normal world? I, I think the best analogy is an umpire at a baseball game, go Strohs, right? At a baseball game, imagine it's a close, you know, guy slides into home plate, catcher catches the ball, tags him, and then the whole, the whole place, the whole stadium just gets dead silent as you wait for the outward sign instituted by Major League Baseball Right? Uh, that imparts knowledge to the crowd, right? So what happens is it all happens and everyone freaks out. <gasps> and then he goes, he's out of there, right? That moment, that's an efficacious sign. By, by declaring it, by using the sign of the words and the gestures, words and gestures, 
it actually affects what happens. Well, we're gonna do a replay and we're gonna challenge, okay, whatever. That kind of destroys the efficacy of the sign a little bit. In that moment, right, the actual sign and gesture accomplishes that which it signifies. That person is out. Now imagine, guys sliding into home and you know, the tag, everything happens and he goes, blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, what in the what? What just happened? Now what that means is, the outward sign has been corrupted, so it cannot affect the thing it's symbolizing because it no longer symbolizes, right? No longer symbolizes. When you get the Eucharist, but it's filled with oats and raisins and nutmeg, it no longer symbolizes, right? So it's not legalism. It's the sign itself. When the sign becomes corrupted, how can it signify anything? How can it affect that which it signifies if the thing it signifies has been corrupted? If a stop sign has a bunch of gibberish on it, you don't know what to do. I, I went to China for um, two weeks, right? I was in China for two weeks. And, you know, I, I don't know how to read the language. I don't know how to read the symbols, the characters, you know. So if I were driving, thank God I didn't at all, I'd be blowing through everything, right? Right. So the idea is if there's no understanding... Even though the thing is happening, how much richer is the experience when I have an understanding and I approach it cooperating with what it's understanding? So when we talk about sacraments, what are we talking about? We are talking about outward signs that are efficacious, that actually communicate to us what? Some empty ritual, something mirroring magic that some old man does with flowing robes or some very young deacon does with flowing robes over this stuff. And then magically the waters are not. No. It is the exercise using things in creation that Christ has set apart for the sacred purpose of communicating his divine grace. Sacraments give us grace. They affect that which they symbolize. That's the notion of a sacrament. Now, here's the deal that sometimes I think as Catholics, we lose sight of. It's not just and as Christians in general, especially, you know, in, in America. It's not just his death and resurrection that brought us salvation. The whole life of Christ is salvific. The whole life of Christ is salvific. My favorite story to illustrate the sacramental nature of Christ and how it's carried over into the church is the hemorrhaging woman. In the story of the hemorrhaging woman, you have this woman who for 12 years has been hemorrhaging. This is probably her menstrual cycle and for some reason has gotten out of whack and she is bleeding. Now, in the Jewish religion, if a woman was on her monthly cycle and, uh, and was bleeding, that was a sign of a loss of life. Therefore, she was richly impure and she couldn't enter the temple. So you got to think of th diseases like leprosy and stuff like that, stuff that was communicable those were things that kept you out of the temple and they rendered you ritually impure. And so they also rendered you socially outcast. So here's this woman and for 12 years, she's been hemorrhaging. She is losing her blood. She's going through this trauma, but it's more than what we think of in our culture where it's like, okay, well go to a doctor. Well, she says, I, or the, the story tells you that she had gone to a doctor, many doctors and spent her whole life savings and they had made her condition worse than what it was before. So you could imagine the state that this woman was in a faithful Jew outside of the life of the temple, outside the life of her people. So what happens? She comes up and she sees the crowds, right? So Jesus is walking down a street and the people are jammed in on him. And she has an act of faith. If I but touch the hem of his garment, I know I'll be healed. So she fights through the crowds, reaches down and just, you can imagine like going between people's legs just to get there. And she grabs the hem of his garment. And scripture says, immediately power went forth from Christ and she was healed. So then Jesus says, who touched me? Right? And the disciples all laugh. They're like, teacher, everyone is touching you. Do you not see the crowds? Like, yes, all of the above. D, fill that blank in, right? All of the above are touching you. And he said, I, I felt power go forth from me. And the woman says, I touched you. 
And so he turns and, you know, we have this interchange with Jesus where he says that your faith has healed you. So here we have this woman who approaches with faith, who Jesus, because she approaches with faith and she touches the hem of his garment, power, I'm going to use this word, slightly exaggerated, slight hyperbole, automatically goes forth from him. He didn't turn and say, you know, like, I'm here to heal you. What's going on in your life? You know, do you believe in me? Power immediately, scripture says, immediately goes forth from him and heals her. That's the sacraments. When you approach the Eucharist or baptism, it is not the dependent on the holiness of the minister that communicates the grace of the sacraments. It is not about the holiness of the minister. Why? Because it's not man's work, right? It's not us being good enough to earn the divine grace to make this stuff happen. What is it? It is Christ working through sacramentally his ministers, right? Those who have taken holy orders to bring about using these efficacious signs, that which they symbolize. So when you come before a priest and you fall on your knees and you confess your sins, you are not confessing it to, you know, Father Jesse or Father David or Father Matthew. Jesus Christ is making use of Father Jesse, Father David, and Father Matthew as the outward sign to give you his grace. When you are going to confession, you are on your knees at the foot of the cross. That's the only thing that makes the sacraments work. We call it, uh, or I like to call it, it's the engine. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the engine that powers the sacraments. So when you come forth for the sacraments in faith, right, you come forward and you want to receive that which they communicate. You will. That's the beautiful thing about the sacraments. Just like it was for this hemorrhaging woman who desired above all things healing to be made whole, and she came to the one person who could make her whole, and she in faith laid hold of his garments. The church is asking you, you know, how come she couldn't stand on the street corner and say, hi, Jesus, and then immediately be healed? Why the physical touch? Why the encounter? It's not because Jesus needs that. We need that because we're creatures with bodies. We don't just have a body. We're not a ghost in a machine, right? The body is not a shell. The body is us. You don't say, like, you have struck my body. You say, you hit me, right? <laughs> because the body matters. Matter matters. In Romans chapter 1, St. Paul, reflecting on everyone outside the covenant of Moses and outside of Christianity, he says, he's talking about their relationship to God. And he talks about God. For what can be known about God, he has made it evident to them, right? Through the works that he's done, we can know his eternal power and deity. So St. Paul is saying that God, through nature and the works of nature, has communicated himself to us. He can be made known. Now, the church teaches that you can know that God exists through reason alone, without the Bible, without any revelation. You can know that God exists. And that's why a lot of Greek philosophers were monotheists. In fact, Socrates was killed by the state of Athens. And one of the many charges against him was atheism because he didn't believe in the state gods. He believed in the one God. And so when we begin to see this, we see that creation discloses is like a book of revelation. You got the Bible and you got nature. Creation discloses the glory of God because they are, it's made by him. So that means that creation is good. In your Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, how does it start out? In the beginning. In the beginning. Most important words. Every Jew would know that. It's like every American knows uh, about you know, the freedom of speech or whatever as the First Amendment. You know where that comes from instinctually because it's such a part of our heritage, right? We the people. Oh, okay. I know what that is. In the beginning. God created. Okay, there was no war of the gods. There was no epic violence. There was no battle. All the ancient myths were all predicated on a war of the gods. But what happened in the book of Genesis? They didn't have that at all. God spoke and it was. So the understanding, the symbolism used in the book of Genesis through the seven days is God fashioning a home, a temple, and a palace 
for his people, for us. So when you look at it from that perspective, you start reading Genesis chapter one, verse one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the midst of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. When God creates each step, what does he do? He speaks it. It comes into being by the power of his word. In Greek, that word logos is where we get the ology at the end of our sciences. It means a rational ordering. It means an intellectual understanding or procession. And so when God creates, creation is ordered. It is not chaos. It is ordered and it is knowable by rational minds. In fact, the God who made it is knowable by rational minds with the eyes to see and ears to hear when they look at creation. It discloses the glory of God. In Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the midst of the waters. And then God blank, let there be light set. So how does God create by the power of his word. I was in a McDonald's one day, like a gentleman, and a guy came up to me. Excuse me, sir. Can I tell you about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, for some reason, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses never come to my door. So I have to live vicariously through my friends. But today at McDonald's at 6 a.m., over Egg McMuffins and delicious hash browns, my dream came true. <laughs> Man sits down across from me, and I say, he, well, he asked me that, and I go, I wish you would. And he sits down, and, and he has his King James Version of the Bible, right? And he had a brochures at the ready. And he didn't tell me what he was, what he was from, or anything like that. He just had the Bible turned around, and he flipped to his passage in Colossians uh, chapter 2 or chapter 1, and he's like, read this for me. It's like, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. He goes, oh, how about that? He kind of talked like a Mississippi Riverboat captain, right? So he's like, oh, we're drinking a mint julep, right? Uh, and he said, uh, isn't that funny? How can he be the God of all creation if he's the firstborn of all creation? It doesn't sound like he's God. And in my head, I was like, I'm going through the Rolodex of beliefs of major world religions that would also use the King James Bible. I'm like, bet you this guy's a Jehovah's Witness. What do they believe? What do they believe? And as he was going through the Bible, I grabbed his brochure and I flipped it over and it said JW.org. And I was like, what do they believe? What do they, they believe St. Michael the Archangel became Jesus. And then he reverted back to Michael. They don't believe in the divinity of Jesus. They don't believe in the Trinity. Let's do this. So I was super excited. <laughs> so he goes to another passage and he says, look at that. It says he's the firstborn of the dead. Isn't that crazy? I think, well, yeah, because when Jesus became incarnate, when the eternal son of God entered into human history and he became incarnate, he did what we called recapitulation. That is, he made himself the head of all creation. Recap. Pitulation. He made himself the head. That's why he's over all things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, right? So Jesus Christ now is renewing creation by entering it. The God who creates it, and he's just looking at me. I said, listen, look, real quick, let's just go, and I didn't even turn his Bible around. I go, let's just go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, what does it say? You read it from your Bible. I don't need to read it from mine. You just go. And he goes, uh, what verse? And I was like, the first verse. And it says this, in the beginning was the word. So in the beginning. What does that sound like? Genesis. If you're writing this to a Jewish person in the first century, they're going to think, aha, aha, <laughs> right? You're talking about the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, how does God create? He creates by the power of his word. So if he creates by the power of his word, oh, and there's this weird waters, the uh, dark waters of the deep that's over creation. And then the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God is over the waters. Interesting. You've got God, the word, and the Holy Spirit right there in the first three verses of Genesis chapter one, but more on that later. So I said to him, okay, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I said, let's just walk through that real quick. In the beginning was the word. I said, if you're a Jew and you hear that, you think of in the beginning, Genesis, how does God create by speaking? Okay, so this is the word of God, fine. In the beginning was the word, and the word 
was with God, with implying distinction, and the word was God implying union. He was in the beginning with God. He, pronoun, in the beginning with God. This is personal. So this person is the word of God who is with God and is God. God from God, light from light, true God from God, begotten, not made. So we start going through this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be, to be through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life and this life is the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it or cannot overcome it. So I said, okay, so let's just think about this. Here we have the word of God distinguished from who God is, but also united to God that brought all of creation into existence. He explicitly says everything that was created came through the word. So if everything that was created came through the word, the word is the creator. So we go back to Genesis chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So what is John, a Jew who's a devout, you know, tied to the temple aristocracy, what is he saying about Jesus? In the beginning was the word. He's saying he's God. And then verse 14, drop down. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, look, 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 do you see? See, you're reading it with your eyes. It's like, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. That's nice. It's a little Hallmark verse. No, it's not. It's a Jewish author referencing the most important book in their lives that they literally memorized when they were kids. In the beginning, we the people. That's what that means to them. Right, so when Martin Luther King said in one of his famous speeches, I have been to the mountaintop, I have seen the promised land. He was doing what John is doing in chapter one, verse one. He was alluding to something so that he can shove a lot more meaning into a lot less words. I have been to the mountaintop, I have seen the promised land. What is that a reference to? That's a reference to Moses, who was not permitted to enter the promised land. So he, God let him go up onto the mountain that overlooked the, what river? Jordan River, into the promised land, the same place where John the Baptist was baptizing, and he looks into the promised land, but he knows he'll never go there. So what is Martin Luther King Jr. saying by that illusion? If we don't know the Bible, when we hear this, we're like, ah, oh, he's on a mountain. That's cute, right? But he's saying, I'm like Moses, right? I'm inhabiting this role, 400 years of bondage. I'm leading them out of this, but I know I won't get there. A few months later, he was killed. Like, it's fascinating. But if you don't understand what he's saying, what he's alluding to, you're going to miss the main point. He's saying, I'm like a new Moses here. I'm fulfilling this role in my faith, but I know I'm not going to get there. Maybe my kids are my grandkids or my great, great grandkids, but it's not going to be me. So what does that say? When John in John chapter one tells the story of who Jesus is, he says he's the word, but he uses in the beginning, he's drawing our attention to this thing. And just like in Genesis chapter one, where the spirit hovered over the midst of the waters, there Jesus is baptized in John chapter one. He goes into the waters and when he comes out of the waters, a voice of the father speaks. This is my son, my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. But then it says that the spirit hovered over Christ in the form of a dove or like a dove. And here you have Christ, the son, the word of God, God, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of the Jordan River as you hear the voice of God the Father speak. The Trinitarian notion is all right there. On the day when Christ ascended into heaven, he gathered his disciples. He's leaving, he's forming the church, and what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. How do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Lo, I am with you always, yes, even to the end of the age. And so what did they do in the book of Acts? 
They are baptizing people left and right. It forms the center point. Why? From the Jewish understanding of the mikvah of being ritually pure, it passed over into the Christian understanding of what his once for all death on the cross accomplished for us. It got rid of the pollution that alienates me from God. And that pollution ultimately is not eating the wrong food or with a dirty cup or something like that. That pollution is sin, a rejection and a disobedience of God. So what Christ has to do is it's not enough to cleanse the outside of the cup. He wants to cleanse the inside of the club, cup, but he can't, or club, whatever, but he can't do that unless you say yes. And so how does he bathe you in his blood, making your robe whiter than any bleach could ever get? How does he wash you in the blood of the lamb? That's what baptism signifies. Baptism signifies that the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses the pollution of sin, floods the life of your heart, soul. As St. Peter says, Referencing the flood of Noah, this prefigured baptism, which saves you now, which is not just the removal of outward of dirt, but is rather an appeal to God for a clean conscience. So what is baptism? Baptism accomplishes that which it signifies. One, the washing away of sin. Two, the redemption of Jesus Christ that was purchased for me at this beautiful free gift of his own life and love, infinitely poured out for me. He accomplished what I could not, so he freely gives so that I can be incorporated into him, in the beloved. So what happens? Baptism doesn't just wash me, it kills me. It kills the old man Adam in me, right? Because we are born in a state of disinheritance. Original sin is like me not paying my mortgage. If I'm Adam, not paying my mortgage ruins my credit and gets me and my family evicted. My family doesn't get to live in the home just because I, I'm the one that screwed up and I'm the one that didn't pay the bills. It's my sin, but they still are affected by the consequence. It's like that with the fall. It's a disinheritance. We are born in the state of disinheritance. So what Jesus Christ does is he gives us an even greater inheritance than was promised to Adam. He gives us his divine life. So what is sin? Yeah, it's pollution. But from the very beginning, it's this, it's alienation between humanity and God. So what does Jesus do before he enters into, or right when he enters into the world, the reason why the whole life of Christ is salvific is because divinity is now perfectly, completely, and fully united to humanity. And that is accomplished in your little baby's life, a free gift of divine grace, the moment they are baptized. So we take this sacrament completely seriously. We do not believe in a fake Poser cultural Catholicism, where if you don't have faith in the home, you can still come by the local church, attend a class, and get your kiddo baptized. If you don't have faith in the home, we don't baptize your child because it's not a subjectivist faith. It's a family's faith. It's an ecclesial faith. The faith of the church precedes anyone's individual faith. So when you come forward, you are coming before the cross of Christ and you are claiming your child for the cross of Jesus Christ. You are claiming your child for him and you take your child back into a home where he is known and loved because you have been known and loved by him. And if you haven't had that experience in your life, email me. My email is right here. I want to help you. I literally am paid to help adults have better faith in Christ. That's my whole job. That's why I'm up here sweating like a crazy person. It's not my fault. I've been drinking too much coffee. You know morbid obesity. But on top of that, right, what I want you guys to do is I want you to realize that this is, like she said about all those people getting their marriages convalidated and stuff, I'm in charge of all that. I oversee all of that, right? So if your marriage is not in union with the church or something like that, I'm your guy. You will hear my annoying voice at every step of the level if you want to get your life in union with God, because ultimately baptism is not about a ritual. 
It's about what that ritual communicates, which is communion. The very life of the Trinity is a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. Perfect, self-giving love. The church is meant to be characterized by the gift of Christ to the world. And so he summons the church. What is the church? The body of Christ and the bride of Christ. The body denotes his sacramental, visible, united nature. He communicates himself physically. He's known so that the church is real. Jesus didn't start Christianity. He started a church. But also the bride of Christ. That's the level of intimacy that Christ wants with you. That what sexual union and matrimonial union only symbolize. He wants to have a deeper knowledge and love of you. So if you don't have that in your home, we're not here to fake it till we make it. We're here to grow in faith together. That's why the whole church, not just our deacons, not just our priests, but just like Gabby said, the whole church is responsible for bringing your kids up in the faith. So let me help you. You don't pray? Guess what? When's the best time to plant an oak tree? 25 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. When's the best time to have a prayer life? 25 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. If you don't pray, let me help you. Call me. Email me. Don't call me. Email me. (laughs) I'm here for you. Let's pray. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, the best part is I just closed my exercise ring. Okay. Your heart rate was at 140. Michael, please slow down. I can't. Okay. (laughs) Lord Jesus, we humble ourselves before you and we thank you for the gift of St. Paul's words in Romans chapter 5, where he told us that the free gift of salvation in the second Adam is not like the trespass of the first Adam, who fell into disobedience and exiled himself from the grace of sonship. But Jesus, who by nature is son, entered into our world uniting to himself a full human nature. And so by his death and resurrection, by his whole life, his ascension into heaven, everything, we can be by grace what Christ already is by nature. Jesus, help me to understand that this is not a game with words and symbols. This is not Bronze Age mythology. That Jesus Christ, this is the way you use creation that you've made, that you've hallowed, that you've dignified in order to communicate your life to us and make us a new creation. Bring us into the new Adam. Lord Jesus, I thank you for every man and woman in this room, wherever they are in their life and their walk with you, Lord God. And I ask that you bless their infants that they are preparing to bring or be godparents for, to bring before the sacrament of baptism. Lord Jesus, we pray and intercede for them uh, through the wonderful words that you taught us, Lord. And we dare to say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Lord Jesus, where we feel the most alienation from you, we ask for your grace to repair it. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.